It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What could we possibly be doing wrong? We're putting more and more resources, more and more teachers. Like, what, what do you want from us? We've given you everything you want, teachers. What if we had a show about solutions? You know, a repair manual for the real world. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. Boring. (laughs) Yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Jim, it's that time of year. It sure is. Back to school when parents are worried not only about their kids and whether they got the right stuff for the first day of school, but but also their teachers. Will they get stuck with a teacher who they think is just not the right person for their child? Well, this one's personal for me because, as you know, my my wife was a, a middle school math teacher in the South Bronx for many years. And the problems we have in education are so far-reaching. They run so deep. We've invested an enormous amount in improving our schools, and yet we've, we've seen barely any improvement, just very modest improvement in outcomes. Yeah, and, and also there's a lot of concern about the quality of teaching. Uh, there have been several times where I felt that my kids really were not with the right person. So we're going to talk today about teaching and how to improve the quality of teaching. And our guest is Elizabeth Green. Uh, she's the author of Building a Better Teacher, How Teaching Works and How to Teach It to Everyone. And she has a really interesting background. She's a journalist, and she studied teaching here in the U.S., but also spent a lot of time in Japan looking at some of their methods. So welcome to our show, Elizabeth. And my first question, should we just fire bad teachers? I think that people who reach the conclusion that the problem with education is that we haven't fired enough bad teachers, they reach it by drawing a number of rational conclusions, which are supported by data. We've poured more and more money into the education system over time. I mean, doubling. It's like now billions of dollars that we're spending on public schools in this country. And what have we gotten out of that investment? Not much. Our schools are getting marginally better, but nothing close to the increase in investment. So what should parents be looking for when they go to back to school night? Yeah. So as a layperson thinking about this question, well, is my kid's teacher good or bad? And we're looking for how charismatic are they? How interesting are they? Are they jumping around a lot? Are they silent and boring? That's not what we should be asking. We have to ask, 
what kind of preparation does this teacher have before and ongoing to help solve these minute-by-minute problems of how to help that boy and all the kids in this class understand this particular concept? So it's important to look at this from the teacher's perspective, not just from our perspective as parents. Yeah, and then we also have to look through the eyes of the kids. So um, good questions to ask are not, do you think your teacher is good or bad? Do you like him or not? But what did you do today in class? What did you think about? What were you struggling with? Um, What did you learn? So you talk a lot about this uh, myth of the natural teacher, and, and I, I full disclosure here, I'm pretty biased on this topic because uh, my wife was a longtime middle school teacher, math teacher, as a matter of fact, and I saw this a lot in, in following these debates about education that, that people would be talking about how do we bring in these sort of naturally gifted teachers, and not about what you're talking about is given a, a a diverse range of people who are going to be teachers. Can't everybody get better at this? Is there a myth of the natural-born teacher? I mean, is that widespread? I think there is, and it's both the way we act as parents and the assumptions we make and also the way we act as uh, a public that's trying to get better schools. So as parents, we think, I have to lobby to get my kid into the best teacher's classroom, not... I want to find a school or a school district that treats teachers like professionals who have specialized knowledge that they need to continuously improve on in order to tackle this job. Um, similarly, the, the policymakers and the public um, are often talking about how can we make teachers more accountable for their results, as if all we need to do is tell them that their job is to help kids learn, and then they'll somehow act. But that idea falls prey to this because the assumption is if you can just identify the people who are born to do it, um, they will respond to incentives and then we can fire the others. But the reality is nobody's born to do it. And so- instead you say there's a crisis in the way we deal with teaching as a craft, that the craft of teaching is not emphasized as much as it should be. Yeah, we have to reframe the the problem. The problem is not that we have too little accountability, that we haven't asked teachers to do their jobs well. The problem is not that teachers don't have the professional autonomy to do a great job, which is the counter-argument that you know teachers' unions often say, oh, we just need more space to do what we already know to do. No, the problem is that teaching is a craft that has not been treated as a craft. And so we have to find ways to make sure teachers have opportunities to learn on the job. Um, and they're not getting those opportunities now. They have to actually fight the system to get those opportunities. There, a lot of reforms have been tried. They continue to be tried. There's a sense that there's resistance to it. Some of it maybe comes from teachers. Some of it maybe comes from administrators. Where do you see uh, the pushback coming on, on reform ideas? Um, well, you know, that's, this is another one of those mysteries that for years as an education journalist, I couldn't really crack and that I think would lead a rational person to conclude teachers just must not care about student learning. But as I came to understand more, I was like, I understand where teachers are coming from in their knee-jerk resistance to every new idea. And where they're coming from is, think of the number of places that send them a new idea. Every, not just a year, but every month, there's a new idea. Um, There's this great educator named Lovely Billups who used to go around the country talking to teachers through the teachers union. And she she said that we all have a motto. It's, this too shall pass. (laughs) Um, Every new thing that comes it's going to go. So not only do teachers 
and confront a ton of new ideas all the time. They, they can't physically listen to all of them. At the same time, they are so misunderstood by most other Americans who do not understand their job that screw you would be my response too. If somebody else was trying to tell me how to do a job that they have no idea how hard and, it is. And because everybody, they're second guess so Well, much. everybody thinks they're an expert because everybody went to school. And everybody and, and parents have children and they know their children probably better than their teachers know their children. And they have understandable urgency. Like, I want my kid to understand fractions and he doesn't. Please help. You know, that is an understandable urgency. I'm really struck by this idea of autonomy. And it seems like the system does have a lot of this belief. It goes hand in hand with the natural born teacher idea that that teachers need a huge area of creativity in how they run their own class. Which sounds good in a way, but it also means it's pretty lonely in there. And a lot of people are coming up with their own lesson plans, and, and they're not building necessarily on a, on a base of a really great lesson plan that the school board handed them. They're on the Internet at night searching what some teacher in Oklahoma right. might have done. And they're, it's really – from the standpoint of other businesses, it seems like they're too independent. It's insane. We're asking every teacher to invent on her own something that is so complicated. It's like asking them to invent the equivalent of complex algebra, like every day on their own with no access to help, or actually with access to conflicting messages that's like this thing that the test company said, this thing that the textbook said, this thing that the other textbook said, this thing that your principal said, and all of which conflict. You're listening to How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And Elizabeth Green is joining us, and I'm fascinated by the title of your book, which is Building a Better Teacher. It's not natural-born teachers. Yes. Yeah. I think I think every teacher who is, gets excellent does it by deliberately finding the opportunities to learn. Like, okay, how do I teach the concept of rate to fifth graders? What do I do in the moment to make sure that this one boy is going to be able to participate in class in a productive way that will help him learn and everyone else learn at the same time? Tell us about uh, Akiko Takahashi. Hope I got that right. Yes. Uh, A Japanese teacher who you met who was inspired by great American ideas taught them in Japan with a considerable amount of success, but was shocked when he came to the U.S. What kind of things was he teaching that he learned from American education reformers? So one of the things about our country is that we are one of the world's best producers of education ideas, but we're some of the worst implementers of those ideas. So Akihiko Takahashi is a teacher who entered the profession in Japan at a time of change for especially math teaching in Japan. Um, Teachers were starting to think about uh, how can we help students better understand the math so that we're not just assigning them a bunch of problems to practice, but actually getting them to think. And these teachers were inspired by American educators who they would read these documents that came from the U.S. saying, describing a whole different way, much more exciting way to teach math in which students were really engaged in the ideas and debating um, and really understanding them. So this uh, these teachers in Japan, they start building on the U.S. ideas and changing everything about their schools. And one day, Akihiko Takahashi, who's been spending his whole career trying to teach more in this new American way, gets the opportunity to move to America. 
the source of his inspiration for the last five years as a teacher. And he goes to America and he finds something that's really stunning to him, which is that nobody in America teaches in the way the American documents described. Nobody. In fact, it looks like exactly the way he was taught as a child in Japanese school. So he has this conundrum and puzzle. And what is the difference exactly? So... In the, the when I've traveled to Japanese schools, what I could see happening in math classrooms is instead of starting out the, each lesson with the teacher at the board saying, today we're going to learn about decimals, or today we're going to learn the formula for solving the area of a triangle, the teacher would instead put on the board a problem, a really engaging problem. In fact, I would sit in on like second grade, third grade lessons, and I myself would be learning math and very <laughs> stimulated because I was like, oh my God, I don't know how to solve this problem. Um, and so the students spend the first part of the lesson struggling through the problem. They work alone, and then they start talking to each other, and they're very excited and active. And then at that point in the class, the teacher is weaving through the desks and watching. What are students thinking? What are they struggling with? What are they learning? She identifies several different methods the students have come up with. Then the students share those methods with their peers. They put them on the board. They say, here's one way to solve the area. Here's another. Here's another. And by the end, they get to the formula for how to find the area of a triangle. And they've done it because they almost invented this formula themselves. They actually understand it. So this is, a, this is a lively space. It's an incredible aha moment. Students are debating one another. They're saying, oh, uh, you know, this is Akihiko's idea. This is Yoshi's idea. And they're <laughs> de debating each other and comparing. And they get very excited when they finally can say, there's the formula. And those are the results of American reformers' ideas. In your experience, what happens in most math classes here in the U.S.? Unfortunately, um, in my, ex my reporting experience and also larger scale studies that look at multiple classrooms um, where researchers go in, um, it's not like that. So when researchers have looked at the different kinds of contributions that students make in classes, Japanese students in math class are much more likely to analyze, to think, to uh, pose a question, an idea. American students are only offering a yes or no. Um, this is the right answer or that's the right answer. You know, it's so funny because my wife observed the exact same thing. And sometimes pressure came from the kids, too. They wanted that simple formula for, for getting the right answer on the test. And when you try to push them to actually, in a way, derive it for themselves or figure out how you got there so that even years later when they've forgotten the formula, they still, right. they still can find a way to do right. the math they need. Uh, but the kids also would push back, you know, because um, it's sometimes not the easiest path for them, even though it might be more engaging once you're into it, but it's not necessarily initially the easiest path. It's countercultural. It's different than the way we all were taught in school, and it's different from the way we prefer that's easier to engage in the world. Um, and there's, by the way, nothing wrong with formulas. It's just those can't exist absent a, a meaningful structure that helps you understand why. Let me push back a little, because... You have critics, and they have pointed out several things. One of the things they've said is Japan is way more homogenous than the United States, that teachers have more time to be able to train for these things, that parents are more into education than many parents are in this country, that there's no data to prove that this new system of teaching really helps. How do you respond? I think that 
for sure, it's helpful to have an affluent country with a real strong social safety net. Um, for sure, it's essential that teachers have more time in which they can learn about teaching in addition to just teaching students on their own. In this country, teachers spend an average of a thousand hours a year in front of students teaching. Um, in countries that outperform us, it's almost half of that. It's like 600 hours a year on average, leaving them that extra 400 hours in which they can learn. So absolutely, we need fundamental restructuring in this country on many fronts if we're going to be successful. But what Japan says is we cannot um, believe that it's impossible. It is possible. I really like what you're saying about the spirit of change in Japan, but isn't it really hard to compare the Japanese example with this country? Because we are just so much more varied in our income levels, in our ethnic and, and racial groups, in, in classes, in different communities that have very different attitudes towards raising their children and education. It's true that our country has unique challenges um, that Japan has fewer of, but that does not mean we can't learn from Japan. So I, to me, it's as simple as that. I mean, another piece of this, so another country where teaching has been treated really as a craft and the country has invested in changing that treatment is Finland. Um, and in Finland, if you ask the, the former minister of education, Pasi Salberg, what was the key change that enabled all of your education reforms to work? And, you know, Finland, as a result of these changes, is now at the top of all of the international tests. So what is the key change? Pasi Salberg will say it was electing more women into political office. Okay, what? Like that? I thought you were going to say the craft of teaching. No, electing more women into political office, it created a political environment that radically invested in a social safety net that allows teachers to be professionals focused on education only. In this country, teachers have to be so much more. And that is an a huge challenge. And pretending that we can solve the educational crisis without investing in the social safety net at the same time is stupid. We, we should never pretend that. So one of the things that has struck me about this debate for so many years, you know, if a car company was making low quality cars, would anybody be saying fire bad assembly workers, fire bad assembly workers, or if, or if you're having trouble in a war, like fire the bad soldiers? No, you look to management first. You fire the management first, you know, and then uh, you work your way down. To, to, there might be occasional issues at the worker level, but if the workers aren't being led properly, if there's not a culture that, that allows them to do a good job, it seems really perverse that there, our first instinct is to blame the teacher. Maybe it comes back to that idea of the the, of the autonomy and the and the natural born teacher that that's going to solve our problem. So it's a real puzzle. If you look at those numbers, you it's like what could we possibly be doing wrong? We're putting more and more resources, more and more teachers. Like what what do you want from us? We've given you everything you want, teachers. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right? But I think that what they're missing is they don't understand how complex the work of teaching is. And once I, as a reporter, came to see that, everything became a lot more clear. And so I think there's a different story we can tell to explain why we've poured in all this money and not gotten the results that's not just that the people must be rotten. Mm -hmm. It's actually the system. The system is rotten. But there are some rotten teachers. Uh, There are. There are people. I don't think that every person who's teaching is in the right job for them. Absolutely. And and every effective organization has the ability to have a say over who's going to be in the job. So absolutely, that's true. But actually, also in professions where that are where people are doing very specialized work, uh, they actually have a lot of access to learning opportunities. And that's a huge part of the investments that effective companies make. I was really struck by your Japanese example. My late brother was the CEO of a manufacturing company, and he brought in something called just-in-time production into his company, uh, which, which was aimed at greatly improving the quality of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And he was a bit of a pioneer on this. And he went to Japan to see how they did it. Mm-hmm. And just like with your example, the Japanese were actually learning from an American, right. Edward Deming, right. who, who right. brought these manufacturing yeah. techniques. They took them very seriously. Toyota and Nissan yeah. had much better, for instance, new car quality yeah. than, than the U.S. car industry did for years. I think we're catching up now. But still, there's that resistance to yeah. taking on a new idea. Why is the educational system so resistant to true cultural reform? Well, I think another way to ask the question is why is Japan so receptive? And I think that the Japanese have a culture as that as the auto manufacturing case shows and um, other cases show of a deep, deep respect for craftsmanship um, and what every single craftsman has to do. So there's a cultural bias that every professional, no matter what field you're in, is going to have a lifelong learning trajectory. And that's just an assumption about every job. Sushi chefs, as that awesome documentary, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, showed, I think, they spend their entire lives just trying to master tiny things like how to make the right um, egg tamago sushi. As far as I can tell, scrambled eggs, right? (laughs) Made into a cube. So um, I think that 
that culture is one that's very receptive to what education certainly needs and how it treats professionals. So let's let's get into the into specifics. I think we've had a really good overview of, of some of what the issues that we face and 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 the critique. Yeah, so drum roll, please. Yeah. So <laughs> let's get into some specific ideas, and we can start at the at the level of an individual school. If you were a principal of a struggling middle school somewhere in America, what's what's step one in in implementing something achievable? So I think what what is important about the Japanese is almost less the way they teach and much, much more the way they treat teaching. So in the U.S., the individual teacher's classroom is really a private place. I mean, one teacher that I talked to in my reporting said in, in being inducted into the profession, the first time he had some a mentor um, assigned to him, she apologized before observing him teach. She said, teaching is the second most private act, and I would never want to catch somebody else doing it. Like, it's embarrassing just even to watch somebody else teach. It's like watching them undress, right? But in Japan, the classroom is open. Teachers are constantly coming into one another's classrooms. In fact, there are whole days when teachers will travel across the country just to see teachers teach. Yeah, I've I've often been struck by how lonely a teaching is, even though there's talk about learning from master teachers, there's very few opportunities to do it in the day, during yep. the day of a typical American school. What about number two? So it's really important to get to number two because it is not enough just to say, oh, teachers need to collaborate more. Like that's actually something that is an intuition that a lot of people in American education have had. And they've created these things called professional learning communities or there will be a professional development day off and all the rest of us have to like take our kids out of school for that day because the teachers are doing their workshop. Um, And in all of this professional learning community stuff, very little professional learning happens. So they're meeting, they're talking, and presumably you would think that's the same as in Japan, but you don't get the same results. So why? Why why is that? A big, big problem is there's a lack of common decision about what we should even be teaching in the first place. The the third suggestion, um, does it have to do with with the way we train teachers? Because there are a lot of education schools, they emphasize theory, it seems, more than practice. Definitely number three is also rethink pre-service. What happens to a teacher before she enters the classroom? That also really fundamentally needs to change. Um, One of the biggest problems is that when teachers go to school, presumably to learn how to teach, they're being taught about what one scholar called anything but teaching. So education schools, their whole purpose is to train teachers, but most of the people in them are either actively disinterested in teaching or sort of just kind of okay with it. They don't visit schools. They haven't taught recently themselves. And the smallest budget item is for the people who actually have to teach teachers to teach. And so we have very little definition um, to make that experience meaningful. So we're getting a good idea of what a good school would look like and what it would be like for teachers. How do we roll that out across a state or across the country? What kind of policy can help? This is super, super tricky because I think there's kind of two theories of change that are equally viable that are being hotly debated right now that we have to decide between. Um, One of those says the only way to do this is to wipe out all the existing governance structures around public education today. Um, So if you look at uh, Japanese schools and you try to say, are there any cases of highly effective teaching at scale in this country? There are, but 
they only exist outside of the public school governance structure. So what are they in charter schools or private schools or religious schools? Networks of charter schools. And why? It's because those networks of charter schools are able to say, do number three, really. They're able to say, uh, we're going to have a common curriculum. We're going to have a common definition of what all students need to learn. And then we're going to change the structures that give teachers more, so they have more time in which to learn to teach. And they, have, they can actually see each other teaching and do meaningful work. So that's the only place it exists. But that's outside of the democratic governance structure of American education. So Which you say is very confusing. Because it's of state, confu- local, right. uh, federal. Yeah, the problem. So, what? Why aren't public schools doing that? Um, forming networks. Well, they try, but then they have five different bosses, even just within the government, not to mention the textbook companies that are completely confused. The textbook companies are serving 50 different markets, each of 50 different states, each of which has like hundreds of different markets within that. That's districts that have their own autonomous control. So we have a very confused and cluttered system of governance. Um, So you could say the only way to change this is to blow it up. Just focus on these charter networks, radically grow them, um, and that's the only way we'll get change. But a critic of that theory of change would very, very rightly point out, hold on a second, we have this system of governance for a reason. We are a democracy. It might be a little bit messy, but we believe that schools have to serve the people. They shouldn't be governed by private boards that don't report to the public. And in fact, we see the consequences of what can happen when schools do that. Charter schools do not serve as many of the low-income students they seek to serve that are in the same neighborhoods. They serve fewer students with special education needs, with English language learning needs. They're more likely to uh, take measures that we just wouldn't support as a democracy. So that the, the, so the counter argument, the other theory of change that I think is viable is, OK, no, we're not going to blow up the public schools. We're just going to change them from within. And the common core standards, those they accomplished what we thought was impossible. Even within our fractured governance structure, we have like almost four, 50 states agreeing to do the same learning goals in English and math. We can build on that. And we can have a revolution that's ground up within the public school system. So these are the sort of two things I see ways forward fantastic that's that's a wrap great thank you very much yeah thank you that was great it was fun i want uh, to see you guys disagree you... now well i knew, well i don't know if we will that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will afterwards elizabeth green thanks very much so jim we're trying to build our audience get the word out there about how do we fix it it'd be really helpful if folks would uh, go to itunes and review and rate us um, because that will will help. It'll bump us up in the ratings. That's really crucial. And you know, and as always, you can follow us on Facebook and 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 Twitter and all the rest. But those ratings are really key for any podcast you like. Yeah, I got marketing buzzing in my head. I just got back from the podcast movement conference, which was all these people, a lot of us struggling to get our word out, and then others who've got millions of downloads. It was a lot of fun. Well, but let's, I, well, let's get podcasting. Oh, Jim, we are going to disagree. I I can feel it. I'm really troubled by one of the things that Elizabeth said, which is the this too shall pass refrain that she spoke of when teachers are asked to try new teaching methods. Well, I'm going to come down on the side of the teachers with this. I mean, you know, my sense is teachers have seen so many fads come and go, 
and these things are so often implemented so poorly. I think that's some of the pushback to Common Core. The Common Core curriculum may actually be quite good, but it seems like it's being rolled out in a really ham-fisted way around the country. No wonder teachers are fed up. But this is supposed to be a learning environment. Our teachers are asking our kids, my kids, your kids, to change, to try something new, to be different. Shouldn't they be open to change themselves? Yeah, of course they should. But let's start with the management first. I feel like we've got so much encrusted kind of backward-looking management, we way too often we're dropping everything on the shoulders of our teachers. Yeah, and that's one of the suggestions that Elizabeth makes. She says that... Uh management is really confusing, that states take their cues from all kinds of different sources, whether it's local politicians, whether it's federal, state, city. I mean, it seems as if there's so many bosses out there telling not only teachers, but school systems what to do. That, no, I think that's, that's really correct. And I mean, basically, she's arguing that we need more of a consensus about what's supposed to be taught. And I think that that confusion extends right down to the classroom level. It's something that could be fixed Uh, at every level. You know, the Common Core may be a solution to this to some extent, but also something that could be go school by school and town by town. More effort into having a really coherent curriculum so all the teachers are on the same page. Uh, So at least they understand what they're... Yeah, and I think she's totally right about that. Yeah, I... There's one area also I want to push back on, and that's the suggestion she made that perhaps teachers should spend less time in the classroom. And that's like, I mean, how are we going to get the money to pay for that? See, I think she's totally right about that. Teaching is way too private. Uh, Teachers spend hours and hours by themselves in front of their in front of their uh, their students. They don't have the time to learn from each other. They don't have the time to collaborate. And they don't have the downtime they need to prepare. It's incredibly trying. It's like being on stage or giving a speech to stand up in front of a bunch of middle schoolers. I think we have to find a way to give uh, teachers more focused time in the classroom and more time to prepare. And if that means stripping some of the bloated bureaucracies at the top, maybe that's where okay, you find Okay, so, I mean, yeah, because we do have only a certain amount of money to go around here. So right. maybe we spend less on bureaucracy, more on teacher training, for exactly. instance? Exactly, and, and, and more on allowing, you know, why do you only have one teacher in a classroom most of the time? It seems to me that there's an awful lot of teachers ought to be spending the first couple of years learning to teach. They could be that second person in the classroom. Yeah, I got to say, the, the bell went off in my head when Elizabeth started talking about teaching being so solitary, that the classroom seems to be very isolated in this country. Whereas, you know, why not invite your colleagues in or share ideas between you? So I think that her her core insight I really like, it's we're kind of treating teaching as an artisanal process where, you know, each teacher has her own unique way of doing it and cooks up her own lessons and stuff. I think to some extent we want to allow that, but they should have a good solid base, a good solid recipe to work from and good training, maybe more like learning to be an, uh, an airline pilot, very intensive training, tons of supervision. But then once you've You've made it through that, a lot of respect and a certain amount of autonomy for the senior level uh, teacher. I like that idea, too. But does it mean that the the truly great teachers held back under that system? Because it's like one rule for everybody. No, I think the truly great teacher should be spending a lot of her time training others at that point. Now, another thing I like that Elizabeth's talked about was teacher training, that right from the get-go, from the first day that a a prospective teacher comes into an education uh, college, that she or he is told the craft of teaching is job one, that this isn't about the theory of education. It's about building better teachers. I I think she's quite right about that. I'm not sure... 
I quite know how we fix it, though. I mean, it, it seems to me that the, the bureaucracy of the teacher's education is really ingrained. It's not going to be too easy to, to blow up that system. Somehow we need to perhaps just bypass it to some degree and, and come up with alternate hands-on ways of training and certifying teachers. Okay. Jim, I really like your point about teachers versus car workers. When the American auto industry was in the dumps and Japan was making much better cars and eating our lunch, people blamed management or unions, but they didn't blame the car workers. Right, right. I mean, you know, it's a crazy way to run a business to assume that your solution is hire anybody, but then just go around and firing lots of people. That's that myth of the, the naturally gifted teacher. Teaching's a skill that takes a long time to learn. It can be taught. And we should assume that most people should do a pretty good job at it. Of course, the unions do get in the way. They make it hard to get rid of the rare bad apples. But why are we focusing on that? Let's focus on getting the management straightened out and then worry about the rare cases where maybe somebody's just not right for the classroom. So better training, better management, more collaboration, all ideas that Elizabeth brought up. She said something else in her interview, which, which I was fascinated by, and that is this, this point that the Norwegian, I think, education minister raised, that if we had more women as leaders, then things would be better. I mean, maybe you and I should do a show on this about having more women in leadership positions and whether that would bring the kind of cultural shift that we're really talking about here. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to push back on that one, Richard. I mean, anytime I hear somebody say that one group of people is better at a certain type of thing than other people, my antennae go up. I mean, if we want to claim that women are better at politics or better at teaching, say, well, then what do you say to the person who says, yeah, but they're not very good at math or engineering? Well, maybe not that they're better, but just if, say, 50% of the leaders were women, 50% were guys, maybe that would be better than what we have now. Well, you know, no question it would be great to have more women in politics, but I feel like let's be careful about attributing certain sort of modes of consciousness to different people. Everybody's an individual. We've all got the potential to be great or maybe not so great at certain tasks. I think we need to put politicians with good policies and let's not assume that one gender is is better or worse because we've seen the flip side of that and it's not a pretty picture i can feel another show coming on <laughs> so uh that's it for today uh, we've been talking about building better teachers with elizabeth green i'm richard davies and i'm jim Meggs, and the show is how do we fix it you know richard we really couldn't have done this on our own yeah it's true we've had a lot of help and so I guess we should give some credits. Uh, Miranda Schaefer, our producer, and uh, Joe Plord, our splendid audio engineer. So thanks for listening. The show is produced by Davies Content. We make compelling digital audio for businesses and nonprofits. Reach out to us at Davies Content. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. At gmail.com.